Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Yeah. And I'm super thankful for Shep and Rachel and our worship team, man. It's just every week they just lead us in some awesome worship, points us to Jesus. And I'm just so thankful uh, for that. And uh, we're in the book of Acts and we're really working our way through that kind of chapter uh, by chapter. Uh, Before we get into that, just on a personal note, as you guys know, uh, six weeks ago, I had a baby and uh, baby Charlotte and uh, she's six weeks old uh, today. And, uh, and I just want to say just thank you to this uh, church body. Um, and you guys have just really loved us really well. People I, I've never met before are showing up at my house with food. Um, you know, I, people who, if they can't make the drive uh, to where I live, they're, they're giving me DoorDash cards. And I think I've got more money on DoorDash cards than I could spend. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, you guys are such a generous uh, place and uh, you love us so well. And a lot of other people know that as well, but just in this season of our lives, um, we're just so thankful for the way that you love on us and my little new little family. And so I uh, just want to praise God for you and thank you for all that you've done. Yeah. You know, when me and my wife, we got married in May of 2021 and we moved straight here to California. We got here the day before Memorial Day. And uh, when we moved here, we moved into a little 700 square foot apartment in Menlo Park. And uh, I still live in a 700 square foot apartment now. I just don't want anybody to think I've moved up in the world. But, but we lived in this little 700 square foot apartment and, uh, and I encountered a problem that I think maybe is a California problem. I don't know, because I never had this problem in Missouri. Um, the problem was, is that there were ants everywhere. Anybody got ants in your apartment? Okay, maybe not. Is that just my problem? Okay, maybe so. Um, so there were just ants everywhere in this apartment. I mean, there are ants in the bathroom. Uh, there are ants in the kitchen. There are ants running on the ceiling. Uh, you know, there were ant trails running everywhere on the floor. And so it was just an ongoing battle to keep the ants at bay. Okay, and so, you know, I tried it just little by little, you know, I had, I had like little ant traps. Everyone tried the little ant trap thing. I don't think those things work. The ants just go around them, you know? It's like, oh, I see some danger and they just go around the ant trap. Um, I just, I don't know if it works. You know, I've told people about the problem. People have tried to give me all kinds of things, you know, vinegar and oil, you know, vinegar sprays and stuff like that. And, and nothing was working, okay? So the ants are just out of control, trying to fight them back. And uh, one day I'd had enough. And I thought, you know what? It's about time for some shock and awe, all right? So I got some goggles and I, got, I went and got some bug killer spray and some paper towels and I went on a rampage, okay? I went everywhere they were. I was smearing ant blood on the walls, okay? I found little families under my shoes, smashed all those things. You know, I just went everywhere, man. I was just destroying, I'm spraying stuff and wiping stuff and I'm just going after it. And uh, I was kicking over the trash can, you know, they were like, it's my trash can, not your trash can, aunt. And after I kind of expended myself, I was breathing hard. I looked around, I couldn't see any living, breathing ants anywhere. And uh, I picked up the trash can and I saw a piece of rice stuck to the middle side of the trash can on the inside of the trash can. And I thought, that must be a really sticky piece of rice stuck to the side of that trash can. 
And I went to get that piece of rice and I realized that there were three ants working against gravity to get that piece of rice out of that trash can. Like can't stop, won't stop, ants. In the middle of World War III for ants, saying I'm gonna get this piece of rice back home. You know, I had to stop and give a little respect to the ant world. And I thought, you know what? You can have that piece of rice. I'll let you take that home. You know, when we come to this passage, it makes me think of those ants. And the reason it makes me think of that is because a lot of church historians look at the early church and they ask the question, why in the world would anybody become a Christian in the first century? And the reason they ask that question is because becoming a Christian in the first 300 years of the church meant that you, you really, you could lose everything. Lose your job, you might lose your family, your, your spouse might divorce you and leave you. Um, your parents might disown you. Uh, you might die and you might get fed to the lions or get stoned to death by uh, Jewish religious leaders. I mean, it really was not an add value to your life to put your faith in Jesus and become part of the church. And so people ask all the time, as they look at that, why would anybody sign up for this thing called the church and say, I'm, I'm gonna follow Jesus and be a part of this thing. And, but one of the early indicators of why people were doing it was the tenacious togetherness of the people who were following Jesus. The way they, they seem to band together and, and hang on to one another. And in the midst of all the, the whirlwind of pressure coming down on them, they seem to, be, they seem to have joy. And they seem to kind of have a, a can't stop, won't stop kind of attitude. And what we, see, what we run into uh, this morning is we run into a text that gives us some insight into, into how they did that. What was the secret sauce to this tenacious togetherness that they had? Now, now you may be sitting in the room this morning and you may be saying, hey, you know, that was great, you know, 2000 years ago, you know, they got through all of that. And that's just not our world today, Chuck. Like no one's throwing a rock at our head if we go to church and, and I haven't lost my job. Probably, you know, I also don't tell anybody I'm a Christian, but you know, that's a different thing. But, you know, I'm, I'm not facing persecution and my spouse hasn't left me because I'm a Christian. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't lost any of my stock. And, you know, I'm, 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 you know, there isn't been a lot of social consequences to me saying I'm following Jesus. And, and that may be true. But I, I bet there are some people in the room that have their own personal adversity and are, or maybe your life is kind of in the middle of a tornado. And, and you wonder why you can't seem to shake an addiction that you're struggling with. Like there's something that keeps hanging on to you and, and you, you move forward and you're doing better. And then there's just this nagging thing you just can't seem to shake. Or maybe you wonder, maybe in your marriage, there's this, there's this conflict in your marriage and, and no matter how long you've been married and no matter how many times you try to talk about it, you just can't seem to negotiate peace in your home. It just seems elusive to you. Or maybe you're single and, and all you have is toxic relationship after toxic relationship after toxic relationship and you, and, and you get out of it and you go, why do I date guys like that? 
Why do, I, why do I always get caught in relationships that end this way? Maybe, maybe these are questions that you're grappling with. Maybe you've, you've gone through grief. Maybe there's been some trauma in your life and, and you go, man, that, that happened, you know, that happened 10 years ago. Why, why am I still so stuck? And I just want to suggest this morning that the answer to that could be that though you're sitting in this big room and you're hearing preaching and you're singing songs, you have not entered into Christian community and you have not allowed yourself to be known. And that reality has made this experience at Sunday morning a very different experience for some people than it is for other people. And that you walk in here and you're sitting in here and yet you still feel very alone and so many things in your life are still as stuck as they were last year. And the key may be that you're not experiencing the Christian community the way God intended. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning in our text. The context for our text starts all the way back in chapter one. And Tim talked about this, but it's an amazing thing. Jesus had died on the cross. He'd risen again. And then he gathered his disciples and about 120 people. And he began to share with them. He he'd hung out with them for actually a while and ate with them and talked with them and shared with them. And then he got them together and said, hey, I'm about to go, which is the scariest thing that you could hear if you're one of the disciples. Like sweet, like it was really terrifying when you died on the cross, Jesus. But then you did rise again. Wow, that's incredible. That's amazing. You're gonna do what? I'm leaving. But here's his promise in Acts 1.8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the God of the universe isn't just gonna sit and eat with you like at a meal. He's actually gonna enter into your skin, crawl into your skin and he's gonna live with you and nothing can separate you from him. It's a powerful and beautiful reality for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that's just the outline for the rest of the book about how this church is gonna have a can't stop, won't stop attitude. And it's gonna move in and through a ferocious culture that has no motivation to accept them or like them in any way. And yet they're gonna move in and through that culture the way Jesus said they would. The Holy Spirit fell in chapter two. There's Pentecost, Holy Spirit fell. Thousands of people were gathered to see this remarkable thing. They thought the people were drunk. Peter gets up and preaches the first sermon of the early church. And he basically gives a history of the prophets and David and how Jesus fulfilled all the promises of God. He, he culminates the sermon by looking out over the people and he says, you killed Jesus. That's a great way to end your sermon. You're a murderer. You killed him, but it was the hand and it was the plan of God for your good. Now that's an amazing, that's not the sermon this morning, but there's an amazing reality in God's world where he can take our rebellion and he can use it for his plan and for our good. That's a beautiful and powerful reality. And Peter preaches that message and it says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do? And he gave him the gospel, repent and believe. And then what happens is 
In chapter two, verse 41, it says, those who received his word were baptized and there were added in that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. And what happened with those 3,000 souls is they didn't get saved and hear this message and then trot back to their life. I mean, isn't that what happens so often in our world? We hear a great talk, we experience a great thing, we see the beauty of God and then we go, great, it's time for lunch, let's go. And that's not what they did. What actually happened was, is these total strangers, these rejects and these rebels were transformed into a house. These total strangers, these 3,000 total strangers and, and social rejects and rebels were transformed into a house. Look what Peter, who just preached this first set sermon, look at how he describes what happens when people put their faith in Jesus. First Peter 2 says this in verse four, as you come to him, a living stone, somebody look at your neighbor and say, you're a stone. You're not stoned, you're a stone. You as a, I know this is a cheesy joke. I probably won't say that in the third service. Nobody laughed. They laughed harder in the first service. Okay, not about laughing. It's God's word, okay. But you come to him as a living stone rejected by men and in the sight of God, you're chosen and precious. That's a great phrase about your identity, by the way, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a house and that, that's an echo of the Old Testament temple. But the Old Testament temple where, is where God's present, what presence was and how you had to go through a priest and through some sacrifices and, and they had to offer sacrifices in the presence of God for your sin. And, and Peter's saying what happened through Jesus and what happened through the cross is now you, you were like the scattered stones that God has gathered back and made you a house and his presence is gonna live in that house. And you're gonna worship him in that house. And you who were once rejected and were once a rebel, now you are chosen and now you're precious to him. And what we see in our text here in Acts chapter two is that the central thread of this spiritual house is a beautiful expression of family and belonging. The central thread that runs its way through the rhythms of this house, the rhythms of any house of people who call themselves followers of Jesus, whether it's a small house like your life group or whether it's gathering here or whether it's in your college ministry or young adult ministry or whether you're going to marriage ministry, wherever the people of God gather, you're the house and God's presence is there. And the thread that runs through that house is a strong sense of family and belonging. We see that here in chapter two, verses 42 through 47. Check out what happens. These 3000 people, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Do you see it? The church is doing a lot of different things and we're gonna talk about those in a second. But the thread that runs through this church is the sense of belonging. This radical sense that, that you are my family. You are my brother, you are my sister. I belong to you and you belong to me. Now there are powerful rhythms going on in this text that create this culture of family and belonging. And, and if you go, what do you mean by rhythms? Well, rhythms create a vibe. Anywhere you go with the music in particular is the easiest thing to pinpoint, but the rhythms of any group of people create a vibe and, and, and you feel that vibe before you know why it's there. And vibe is just another way to talk about a culture and culture shapes the people who live in it and impacts other people who look at it. And so there are these, these powerful rhythms, these eight rhythms that generate the contagious togetherness and the resilient culture of the church. There are these rhythms that, that actually allow this togetherness to flourish and to grow. And that's what we wanna look at this morning. Let's look at the first rhythm in two verses 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. That's the first rhythm. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, if anyone's unsure about the epistles and the New Testament and their inspiration, this is the first indication that the early church took everything that the apostles said and said, that's scripture. And the early church was very clear about who apostles were and who they weren't and how they interacted with people who taught the Bible and people who wrote the Bible. And there was a dedication to the apostles' teaching. And it wasn't just a, well, we, we read it and we debate it and I give my feeling about it and you give your feeling about it. And I'm not saying that's all bad, but there's a difference in, and this is, I think a lot of this is shaped by our American Christianity and our fierce autonomy and independence. There's a sense in which we come to the Bible and we have parts we like and you have parts you like and the part you like, I don't understand as well. So, eh, you know, but the part I like is really my verse for the day. And, and we have this kind of view of this take it and leave it buffet style of perspective on how we view the Bible. But what you see here is a passion to be shaped by what the apostles said. Like here's their teaching, here's their reflection of all the things that Jesus had taught them in his earthly ministry. And they had a passion for that language to shape them, shape the way they eat, shape the way they talk, shape the way they do their job, shape the way they do their marriage. They wanted the language of the apostles to become their language and to become the lens in which they viewed the whole culture. They were devoted to the apostles teaching because they didn't just believe it was good stuff for life. They believed it was the very breath of God spoken to them. Look at what Paul says in first Timothy about how this teaching is viewed. Second Timothy actually chapter three, verse 16. Here's what it says. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness. Did you catch that there? All scripture is the breath of God on a page. Now, 
in humility, I, I don't know how to understand everything that's in it. But my lack of ability to know for sure what everything means does not exempt me from living under its authority. To saying, this is the breath of God on a page and my highest need is to know what God says. That is the, that, that's, a, that's a higher need than anything else I have is to know what does God say? Because when God says something, my desire is to know it and pursue Jesus through it. And so they're, de- they're dedicated to the apostles' teaching. Not a take it or leave it, not a, not a kind of, you know, uh, you know, this isn't my favorite part of the service, dedicated to the teaching of God's word. The second rhythm here is right after it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and then what? And to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching saying, I want, I want to be shaped by this language. I want this language to shape everything that I do. And, and then they were also committed to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now there are two things going on here. And by the way, you see this phrase again, right? You see it down in verse 46. And it says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So this is a major theme kind of running through their community. But what's going on? Well, you know, I grew up in the church and, uh, you know, we had church potlucks. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The church potluck. And uh, I love the church potluck because everyone brought their own food. And so you could kind of sample everybody's stuff. And uh, I grew up in a family of six kids. And so we ate kind of a pretty steady diet of ramen noodles and stir fries. And so the church potluck was amazing. It was incredible. People would bring stuff I'd never seen before. It was awesome. But my mom always made me go last because I got one huge plate of everything. And uh, so she had to wait for everybody else. This is not just the church potluck. This is... Yes, a meal, but it's also every time they went to take this meal, every time they spent time together to, to become a family and to, and to eat around a table, before they would eat the meal, they would take the table, the Lord's Supper. And they would, they would say, hey, you know, we're, about to move, we're about to move into this meal and, and this is a big family moment, but what has made us a family? Well, what made us, what made you and I, brothers and sisters is the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Every time you pick up the cup and every time you take the table, you need to tell yourself, this is why you're my brother. This is why you're my sister. This is the reason why I used to be far off, but now I belong to you and you belong to me. That's what the table of Jesus Christ did. And so they would take it and then they would eat and they would celebrate. You know, it's an amazing thing. Even social scientists know that people are happier when they eat with friends than when they eat alone. In fact, it has such a powerful social impact on our physical health. In other words, people, if they eat meals with friends, they tend to eat better with friends. Right? Well, why is that? Why is it I don't just eat a whole bag of Doritos when I eat with my friends? Because my friends are like, what are you doing? I'm like, sure, you can have a little banchan chicken, but you can't eat the whole thing by yourself. You're part of a community. And, and there's this, this human aspect where we know this, this eating together, this being together is an aspect of belonging to somebody, to being connected to somebody. And by the way, if you ask me out to lunch and I turn you down, again and again and again, I don't like you. (laughs) Because I like to eat. 
when I was out there in the dating world and there'd be girls that would text me all the time and I'd be like, well, you wanna go? Can we get, you know, can I take you out to dinner? Ah, I'm always busy this weekend. They didn't like me. Eating together is one of the ways we say, you belong here. You're somebody I wanna spend time with. You're somebody I can actually be myself around and be, be real with. And I think it's a powerful aspect of the rhythms of this house that was born out of the death, resurrection, death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. The third rhythm here, for the fourth rhythm, you see it here in 243. It says, well, actually the third, I skipped over one. There's table fellowship and look at the third one. It's right there. Devotion to the apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Just as frequently as they took the table, just as frequently as they ate a meal, they prayed. And I think in our culture, again, in our church culture, this prayer takes kind of a back seat. And uh, maybe we, you know, we're hanging out, we talk for a long time or we gossip for a long time. That also happens too. And we talk about all the problems. And then, and then we maybe go, hey, we should pray about that. We say a little quick 30 second prayer because we need to pray and we move on. I think our perspective on prayer, the frequency of our prayer tells the story of what we believe about God. I think the way we approach prayer tells the story of whether we have any confidence in him or whether we have any felt need, any desperation for him to move, or are we just people who know or think that we can control every situation. But of course we pray because we want God's insight on things, but really we got it. Or maybe we are really desperate, but we have like zero confidence God would work. All that shows up in how we pray. A frequent, passionate prayer life is a reflection of what we believe about God. Now the fourth rhythm, the one I was about to jump to because I got so excited about it, is here in 2.43. It says that there was awe. So there's, there's breaking of bread, devotion to scripture, and then verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What does that mean? It means that this community of people that were living under the scriptures and eating together and taking the table together and praying together had a real sense that God was among them. Like a real awareness of the things he was doing, how he was healing someone, how he was restoring a marriage, how he was involved in the different parts of our lives. I think one of the, the biggest gifts uh, to being on staff at this church and being here in the office throughout the week is that I, I, I office right next to Diane Clemens, who's our middle school pastor. And, and so I get to hear all the time about middle schoolers that are putting their faith in Jesus and, and are sharing and are growing and are being healed from struggles and, and things in their mental health. And it's amazing. It's a beautiful thing to hear that and to celebrate that or to hear what's going on in our worship ministry when I talk to Sheb about what's going on with the team or to hear what's going on in our marriage ministry or in our life groups. It's an amazing thing. It would blow you away what God is doing every day. But you don't have to be on staff to know those things. You just have to be aware. You just have to hang out and talk and see. You'll see it if you're aware. If you get your blinders off and if you live in community, you will see God move. And I actually think it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty big shame sometimes on us 
when we just do church as usual and we have no awareness that what happened in these holy moments when we were together is that God did something. And we rob him of the worship he deserves because we aren't in awe of what he is doing right now among us. But they had this awe. This, they, were, they were in this constant rhythm of seeing what God had done and celebrating what God had done. We see the fifth rhythm here as it continues to move. We see this here in verse 45. It said, or verse 44 and 45, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Do you see that? So, so not only are they together and they're eating together and sharing their lives with one another, but they're also allowing their heart to be moved toward the needs of one another. Now I'll say one of the key things to this that's always missed, we always talk about be generous and be generous and thank you for being generous and it's awesome and that's all good. But, but one of the key ingredients of this is to be in community where you know the needs or be in community so that you can be vulnerable enough so someone knows your needs. And I think, I think sometimes our lack of generosity is that we're not close enough to see the needs. We, we haven't embedded ourselves in the lives of the people that we worship with to really know what they're going through, to really know what they're feeling. And so, yeah, we may have a heart for generosity. We just don't know where to aim it. Or maybe you're here and you go, man, nobody has seen me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. And I would just, I would just want to gently challenge you. I bet if I asked you, if I talked to you, I would find out that you don't have a lot of close relationships, that you have, you have not committed yourself to some of the rhythms that happen in the middle of the week here of ways you can eat with and do life with and walk with people who would love to lean into your life. There's a big fear around vulnerability because our big fear is that if you see me for what I'm really like, you're gonna reject me. So a lot of people who have big needs, don't let anybody see them because they're afraid. When I see that, you're gonna be out. And I just wanna challenge you, if you can lean into this rhythm of radical generosity by leaning towards other people and letting yourself be known. The sixth rhythm here, and you see it right there in verse 46, it says, day by day, they were attending the temple together and they were breaking bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So in the middle of all these things that they're doing, in the middle of all the ways that they are being a family and, and connecting to one another, in the middle of all that is a, is a worship. And it's a worship in the temple. The temple, they, a lot of Jewish uh, believers, they put their faith in Jesus. That didn't mean they stopped going to the temple. So they would go, there'd be worship there. And then they'd go back to their homes and they'd break bread and they would worship there. And by the way, just so, you know, anybody out there goes, man, singing songs is not really my thing. Um, worship and praising God does not have to be to song, praise God. It, it, there's a lifestyle of being the kind of person that doesn't pass by without saying, did you see what God did? Did you see the kindness of God in this moment of our lives? Did, did you see, have you guys noticed? Wow, look at the love of God that he's just poured out on us right now. 
there, there was a vibe, a culture of eating and studying that was all about worship. And they were giving God praise. They are joyfully worshiping. Now, these first five rhythms set up the last two rhythms. And they, they, they set up these rhythms. Um, the other two are rhythms, but, but if the first five aren't working well, then the last two don't happen at all. But what, what you see in these last two rhythms is something remarkable. And remember how we started. You've got a community of people with this tenacious togetherness, this contagious sense of belonging to one another that are somehow surviving in a culture where everything is against them. And then check out, if you think about that, these are radical things to hear said. They're praising God and they're having favor with all the people. Now, does that mean that everybody liked them? Well, we already know that it's not true. Having favor with all the people didn't mean that everybody in their city liked them. But do you know what people in their city knew about them? Their city knew that this group of people didn't just think about themselves, but they loved their neighbors. That this group of people weren't just thinking about the great meals they were having, but they were thinking to themselves, how can I be a good neighbor? Because that's what Jesus taught, go be a good neighbor. And the example Jesus gave to the church was go be a good neighbor to the person who hates you the most. Go be a good neighbor to the person farthest from you. Go be a good neighbor to the person you have the least in common. That was the example, the good Samaritan. Go be a good neighbor. So this little group of people just didn't eat together and sing Kumbaya. They thought, I'm supposed to be a good neighbor to the people who hate me. And I'm gonna move in their direction. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work for their good. I'm gonna work for their good in the schools. I'm gonna work for their good in my neighborhood. I'm gonna work for their good uh, in the government. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna leverage my energy for their good. Now, what's beautiful about this is, this is a recovery of an Old Testament idea. See, when God called Israel together, he said one of the primary purposes that they would be a light to the nations. But what happened over time and, and through so much oppression and being taken from one country to another and, and just so much stuff going on in their history, a, a lot of what happened was is they lost sight of their calling to be a light to the world. And so in one particular time, they were in exile in Babylon. And Babylon, by the way, in the Bible is the, is the absolute worst city and Babylon is, is synonymous with pure evil. And the people of God had been taken in exile to Babylon and they were there and they had false prophets telling them that they should withdraw from the culture, put up the walls, watch their kids, make sure nothing bad engages them from the culture and separate out from the culture. And don't worry about this evil, bad Babylon over here. And the prophet Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord to them and said to them, in 29.7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to God on its behalf. So what's happening in Acts 2 is now a recovery for the people of God. That says, yeah, God rescued you, but he didn't just rescue you. He put you in motion so that you're coming out as a people, as people who are a family. You're now looking out and saying, how can I, be, how can I work for the good of this city? How can I make sure these neighbors who've kicked me out of my job, who've gossiped about me, 
who slandered me, who think that the things I believe are, are just terrible things to believe, things about truth and life and marriage. These are things that are, that are so offensive to our culture. And yet they look at this group of people and they go, man, but they seem to want our good. They seem to want our good again and again and again. They seem to love their neighbors and want the good of this city. That's what this community was known for. And that had the result of the thing that happens again and again and again in the book of Acts. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. In other words, this community, this incredible community that shared meals and fellowship always had room for one more person at the table, always. And this is actually so countercultural to the way we think as human beings. We think, I got my six friends. I got my crew of people. I, I've got the people that I'm, praise God, I got my friends. Woo, we're together. And then now let's put up, make sure they put up the fence so that nobody else can come mess up my table. And this group of people always said, hey, there's another seat at the table. And it's not the seat at the end of the table. It's the seat at the middle of the table. It's, you, you don't have to come check out Christianity and sit in the back. You're invited to be right in the middle of the action. And they always made room for one more. And in fact, that has a massive impact on the other rhythms. Because see, if we don't have a heart for one more, if we're not always thinking, is there room at my table for the one who's on the outside? Is there room at my table for someone who's not connected? If we're not always thinking like that, then what happens is, then the way we study the Bible becomes very self-centered instead of being outward focused the way Jesus taught it. The, the way we pray becomes more like the Pharisee where we pray so that other people can hear us. And how many people have I talked to who say, man, when I hear Christians pray, I think I could never do that. Well, man, what's the problem with that? What is prayer? It's just coming to God and talking to him. So if they hear my prayer and they think I could never do what Chuck does when he prays, that's my fault. That means that I'm praying what? I'm praying that you would hear me, not praying that the person who doesn't know Jesus would see a real and authentic crawl and cry out to God. It shapes the way we eat. Do we invite more people to actually eat with us? When we go out to lunch after work, church, have I met somebody in the foyer who's checking out church and say, hey, come with me to lunch. Come hang out with me. Have you ever been here before? Can I get your phone number? By the way, if you can't ask that, at church, where can you ask it? But it has a heart that says, man, this meal is not just for me, but it's for us. And there's always room for one more. You know, I think there's probably somebody in the house this morning who wonders if that's too good to be true. Uh, my guess is that there's somebody in the house who's a little community gun shy. Maybe you tried it once and you became part of a life group and a community group and you're actually vulnerable because you were going through something and somebody heard that and nodded their head and put their hand on and prayed for you and then they gossiped about you. And that really, really hurt. Maybe a leader let you down. There was a leader and, and, and they'd invited you in and, and they were helping you and thinking through things and then they let you down because leaders will do that sometimes. Maybe you were hurting. Maybe you showed up because you were in such a hurting place and you were kind of forgotten. You went through something and people maybe said, oh man, sorry you're going through that. And then you just weren't on the radar 
anymore. Maybe you were rejected. Maybe you actually tried to lean into this thing and, and you were just maybe a messy person and there were some messy things going on in your life and, and you couldn't really keep all that kind of bottled up and, and people couldn't really handle it. And so you were rejected and you were asked not to come back. Maybe you couldn't break in no matter how hard you tried. You tried to break in, but there was an insider click at the community you were trying to be a part of. And so no matter how hard you went in, you just couldn't pick up the language. You couldn't figure out what was going on and you were never really invited to sit at the table. You know, I just wanna say to somebody who feels that way, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you and the people that follow him are really broken. Chuck, first on the list. But you may feel rejected, but Jesus says this morning with a loud voice, you are chosen. You may feel forgotten and Jesus says, no, you're precious. And you're not just some pebble that's out to the edges. It's not like you're gathered by Jesus and you know because of your backstory, you've got to kind of be out here on the side of the building. No, he wants to gather you in. He wants to build his house. He wants to live in the middle and he wants you right there at the center of the room. Don't let other broken people trying to figure out how to follow Jesus push you away from following Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus and give his people a chance. God, I pray that you would let faith rise up in somebody's heart this morning. God, I pray for somebody in the room right now who feels completely unseen that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would encounter someone today that would see them, maybe even see right through them. And you would speak to them right now that you weren't forgotten, but that the God of the universe knows their name. God, I pray for those of us who follow you, God, we can get so focused on ourselves. God, I pray today you would blow up our, comfort, our comfortable world. Maybe even our comfortable community group, you would, just, you would just blow up our hearts to say, is there room for someone at our table that needs to be here? And would we have your heart to go to the highways and the byways and grab the one who thinks they don't belong and say, hey, I got a meal and you're invited. Would you work in our heart to do that? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.